what determines someone's worth? What if they're young, dependent, inconvenient? Or what if they walk or talk different? Does that change it? they have different color hair or skin? What if this person is anxious or sick or even questioning their own life? Is my life more valuable than theirs? Who determines that? All right, well, good morning, NBC. Welcome to church. Whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online, we are glad that you are with us this weekend as we get to week three of our series, Dignity, They Equals Me. Now, the last few weeks, we've been uh, examining the worth of every human life. So first, we talked about mental health issues. Last week, we talked about special needs. And this week, we come to the challenging topic of dignity and race on, the Martin Luther, on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. One of the most haunting films that I have seen in recent years is the movie Hotel Rwanda. Perhaps you've seen it. The movie tells the story of a man named Paul Rusesa Bagina, played by Don Cheadle, who runs the Hotel de Mi Colline in Rwanda. He lives a happy life with his wife and three children. That is, until conflict breaks out in the country. Because you see, if you know anything about the history, you've watched the movie, there's two main people groups in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Paul is a Hutu, his wife is a Tutsi. The film takes place in 1994, just after the Rwandan Civil War, where there's supposedly peace. But then the Rwandan president is assassinated by Hutu extremists, and then in April of 1994, these Hutu extremists begin a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the Tutsi people. The Hutu leaders encourage their people to kill their fellow Rwandans using machetes, sticks, and clubs with nails. The hatred between these two groups ran deep, and with 100, within 100 days, more than 800,000 Rwandans were killed by fellow Rwandans. Now, in the movie, Hotel Rwanda... Paul Rusesabagina allows Tutsi refugees into his hotel, protecting them from the violence because of his Hutu status. Now, here's why I say the film is so haunting to me. After I watched it, I learned later that Rwanda was one of the most Christian nations in Africa. It was touted by mission organizations as a success story because nearly 90% of the population was Christian. And yet... A genocide occurred. Christians killed other Christians. Murders took place around churches, amongst people who had worshipped together. Why did the message of the gospel not make any significant difference in Rwanda? While there's been many attempts to explain why this happened, the underlying problem comes down to one word, tribalism. In other words, the Rwandan people were more loyal to their ethnic group than to Christ. 
Following the genocide, a Catholic cardinal named Echegare spoke with Rwandan church leaders and asked this question. He said, are you saying that the blood of tribalism is deeper than the waters of baptism? And one of the Rwandan church leaders looked at him and said, yes, it is. Now let that answer sink in. This Rwandan church leader said the reason 800,000 people were killed was because tribalism was more powerful than the church. And the church did nothing to stop it. This is why this story haunts me. Rwanda is a powerful example of the dignity and worth of individuals callously tossed aside. And truthfully, I wonder if the Rwandan Christians read Paul's words to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 13 of his letter where he writes this, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our what? Is our peace, who has made us both one and has torn down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby what? Killing the hostility. Now, what's prominent in these verses, right? You see the words peace and the blood of Jesus and the dividing wall has been torn down. There's reconciliation. There's the death of hostility. And all of this is in the context of relations between Jews and Gentiles, people of different ethnic groups who hated each other. The blood of Jesus should have brought the Rwandans together, and yet it was subordinated to their former identities. And many image bearers lost their lives. What a travesty. And yet, I also share this story because I was recently speaking with a friend from Rwanda, a woman who grew up there and immigrated to the U.S., who was very familiar with this Rwandan genocide because her family lived through it. And this is what she said to me. She said, when I hear the language being used in the United States about people on the other side, ethnic or otherwise, I ask myself, where have I heard this before? And that statement took my breath away. The temperature is hot, right? How do we kill the hostility? How do we lower the temperature? And so today we come to that topic of dignity and race, which is perhaps the most challenging of all the topics in this series, because many hold impassioned opinions. The topic is deeply personal. I mean, 2020 possessed a share of challenges. Chief among them was an escalation of the conversation on racial injustice. In the culture, we witnessed high-profile deaths of many African-American brothers and sisters like Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old man who was simply out jogging when he was fatally shot. Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old woman who was shot and killed in her apartment. Perhaps the most catalytic death was George Floyd, a 46-year-old man who died while being arrested, and the video of him being arrested went viral because a police officer knelt on his neck for eight minutes. It is sad and horrific that these image bearers lost their lives. The temperature is hot. Now, within the church, different opinions about current events have caused a rift along ethnic lines. In fact, well-known Christian artist Lecrae announced a few years ago that he was making a split from so-called white evangelicalism due to an unwillingness to engage on this topic. Now, you may not agree with Lecrae's assessment, but you have to be aware that there's a perception. The temperature is hot. 
And as I watch people discuss these issues on social media, I am saddened. First, because social media is a terrible forum to have intimate conversations. And second, because I have seen an increasing unwillingness of people to discuss substantial issues with people of opposing views. So too often I see people make statements like this, if you don't agree with me on X issue, just unfriend me. Unfriend me now. And that's not good for us. It's not good for our country. It's not good for the church. Have we forgotten the words that James calls us to heed in chapter 1 of his letter where he writes this, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And as I listen today to people talking, it's the opposite, right? We are quick to become angry and offended. We are quick to air our opinions and grievances, and we're slow to listen, if we listen at all. And this train has led us to where we are today, polarized, unable to hear, deaf to the grieving hearts of our brothers and sisters, our fellow image bearers, unwilling to give people the dignity and worth that they are due. Are we living out the story of Hotel Rwanda? Are our tribes more important than living out the gospel of grace? Now, I suspect many listening today may have lost some friends over this issue, people we love who want nothing to do with us now. And again, I'm saddened by that and dissatisfied with the way this conversation is happening. So today I hope, I hope to offer some insights that will get us moving in a more nuanced direction where we can start to, to hear again. How do we discuss dignity and race? How do we lower the temperature? I think three principles are needed. First, the principle of identity. We need to hear other stories. Second, the principle of unity. We need to put others first. And then third, the principle of advocacy. We need to plead others' case. Would you pray with me as we start today? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross of your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your blood covers over a multitude of sins. And I pray as we talk today that you would give us open ears, that you would give us open hearts, Lord God, that you would help us to move into action and not be complacent people. Humble us, we ask today, O Lord. Be with the preacher as he delivers these words, and may they be your words. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so nothing is more central to the conversation on race than the topic of identity. And in today's modern discussion, your race is a major piece of who you are, right? It's the story of your family and your people. It's the story of their triumphs and their tragedies. It's where you came from. Hence... Having a logical conversation about race is a challenge because it is a deeply emotional issue. But what is race? Fabiti Anyabwale, pastor of Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C., asserts that race is not rooted in biology or genetic differences, really. Rather, he says race is a social and psychological construction. In other words, race is a problematic term. Right, throughout human history, race was invented and has been used to justify the conquering of people groups around the world. A better term to use, and one that's more grounded in Scripture, is the term ethnicity, which comes from the Greek word ethne, meaning nations or people groups. 
It's a term Paul uses in Acts 17, 26, where he says this, from one man he made all nations, ethne, that they should inhabit the whole earth. From one man he made all ethne, nations. In other words, there is only one race, the human race. But there are different people groups who each have their own unique identities and stories and customs that make up who they are. We are all one race, and thus to discriminate on the basis of someone's skin color is sinful. James calls this the sin of partiality. He writes this, If you really fulfill the law, the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So don't miss the important point he's making here. First, he appeals to that great command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is called the royal law because literally it comes from a king, God himself. And the law was manifested and first instituted all the way back in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.18 and was reiterated by Jesus himself in Matthew 22. It is the apex of kingdom rules for ethical conduct. In other words, if you don't love your neighbor, you're being unethical, is what he's saying. How, James asserts, do you know if you're not loving your neighbor? He says, if you show partiality, or other translations use the word favoritism. And in the context of James 2, that relates to rich and poor people. However, you can easily see the implications for showing favoritism towards people based on the color of their skin. To show favoritism means you are not treating the other person with dignity. And this is the spirit of what we know today and when, when, when what we talk about today as racism and why it is so sinful. But we have to ask, what is racism? Defining terms is important because there's an old definition and there's a new definition. Now, the old definition goes like this. Racism is discriminating against people based on their race or their ethnicity or their skin color. For example, people used to say that if you're, if you're a black person, you're property. You're not a person. They were not, they were not treated with dignity. This was the evil of slavery and was continued through the segregation laws of the 20th century. It was eventually ended, but it happened. Now, what many people hear when they hear the term racism, they think about that. That's what they think about. But there is a new definition. And this new definition is the one that is predominant in the conversation today. So the old definition is a key part of the new definition, yes, but racism has been further expanded to mean prejudice plus power. And this definition was invented in the 1970s by a social scientist named Patricia Bedol Padva. But do you see the implications with it? Right? Only those in perceived power can properly be deemed racist. And so as a result, it's argued, it is impossible for a person of color to be racist because they don't hold power. Only white people have power, it is argued. So to understand the current conversation about race, you need to be aware of this new definition. So you might hear terms like white fragility or anti-racism or critical race theory, and you wonder, what, what do those mean? They're linked to this new definition. And you ask, what are Christians to think about this? Well, we're going to talk about that in depth at our underground sessions on March 6th. 6th. So I encourage you to sign up for that event. Uh, for today, all I will say is that I do find 
some major problems with this new definition because it doesn't take into account different types of power dynamics. Additionally, racism, biblically defined, the sin of partiality based on skin color, is a problem of the human heart. And it certainly can be manifested in misuse of power, but it is not limited to that. And so this new definition sings out one ethnic group over another, and I think that's problematic. Race is a difficult topic because it gets to the core of our identity. Let's come back to Paul's words in Ephesians 2, in verses 11 to 12, where he reminds the Ephesian Christians of their old ethnic identities. He writes this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, again here, everyone who's a Gentile is somebody who's not ethnically a Jew. And the Jewish people looked down upon the Gentiles because they were outside of God's covenant and they even had a name for them, the circumcision, right? Remember, circumcision is a sign of the covenant of the people of God. And so this term uncircumcision was a derogatory, derisive term for people of a different ethnicity. In modern terms, we might even say Gentile was a slang term. But they saw it as their identity. But Paul tells them, that now they have a new identity in Christ. Look at what he says. He says, remember that you, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So God says, let's remember your old identity. Right? You didn't have hope. People looked down upon you. But now, by the blood of Jesus, I've given you a new identity. In other words, you have been adopted into the family of God. And because of Christ, we can find unity and peace across ethnic lines. Russell Moore puts it this way. He says, our adoption means that we have a different kind of unity. In Christ, we find Christ. We don't have our old identities based on race or class or life situation When we find our identity anywhere other than Christ, our churches will be made up of warring partisans rather than loving siblings. And that is what it means when Paul says that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. The reason the genocide happened in Rwanda is because this truth did not get deep down in their hearts. Our in Christ identity must be greater than our in the flesh identity. In Christ, we are no longer victims, but we are victors through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though we have differences, we can see that we're all part of one human race. But like the Rwandans, we tend to put our cultural identities above our identities in Christ. We tend to say things like, well, I'm a white Christian. I'm a black Christian. I'm an Asian Christian. Our identity must be Christian first. Now, let me offer a caveat and be clear. I am not saying that our ethnic identities are unimportant, nor am I saying that we should not take into account certain preferences when it comes to doing church or engaging in conversations or hearing the stories of particularly minority voices. I am saying that at an identity level, Christ must be preeminent. So the temperature's hot on this topic. How do we lower the temperature? Listen again to what James says. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So just look right there. What does he say? First, 
If we're going to lower that temperature, we must be quick to listen. We must hear the story of the other. Trulia Newbell wrote a fantastic book called United, captured by God's vision for diversity. And in the book, she recounts her experience of developing friendships across racial lines and how helpful that was in developing a love and understanding of people who were different than her. So Trillia is black, and she forged deep friendships with Amy, who was white, and Lillian, who was Chinese. And here's what she says. She says, our differences didn't pull us further apart, rather they united us. Why? Their in-Christ identity united them, and because of that relationship, they were able to listen to each other's story as it related to their cultural identity. They were quick to listen, because listening lowers the temperature. Now, second, in those relationships, we must validate the other person. Now, to validate does not mean that we always agree, but it does mean that we acknowledge a person's feelings. And this is especially important when it comes to relationships across ethnic lines where there might be some tension. Jamar Tisby wrote a book called The Color of Compromise in which he lays out the history of the church as it relates to racial discrimination in the U.S. And there's some hard stories to learn in this book. And while I didn't agree with every one of his conclusions, I think it is important to validate the dark parts of our history because this offers dignity and validation to those affected. Validation lowers the temperature. Third, I would encourage us to use the language of some and not all in our conversations. Now, if you were to walk into an office for marriage counseling, one ground rule the counselor would set is this, never use always or use sometimes when it relates to your spouse's activities. And so as it relates to the race conversation, I think we have to be careful not to say all black, white, Asian, Latino people, because it devalues the individual in front of you. And it keeps you from hearing the story of a unique image bearer with unique gifts. Nuance lowers the temperature. So I think these steps, indeed, help us lower the temperature and have more beneficial conversations. And so as we finish this section, I would close again with an exhortation. Please, Stop having these conversations primarily on social media. Now, of course, I'm saying that as many of you are watching me preach this on social media, so I guess I'm a hypocrite. But it is so much easier to vilify people when you are not sitting eyeball to eyeball with them in their presence. Dan Darling wrote this about our social media interactions. He says, in an era where it has become a cultural right to declare that we're on the right side of history on every issue, Christians are not immune to Phariseeism. So to have conversations and declarative statements behind screens and keyboards or phones or whatever devalues the dignity and worth of the other person, and it only causes division, not unity. And that's point two. Making declarative statements on social media is about putting ourselves, put, is about putting ourselves first, but unity puts others first. And unity does not come easy. It's something we have to fight for. And it was Jesus' prayer for the church. What does Jesus pray in John 17? He prays that his followers would become one. He asks his heavenly Father to sanctify them, to give them the strength to stand out in a world that hates them. And he prays this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now again, who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to everyone who's believed in him. What does Jesus want? He wants us to be one, just as he is one with the Father. In other words, Jesus wants us, his followers, to reflect the very nature of God in this world. And God exists as a perfect triune community, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now that term, in us, refers to that in Christ union we were talking about in the identity section. We must be in Christ first if we are to find unity. But why does he want this unity? So that people might believe in the one who sent us. Now again, I think that's a breathtaking assertion. Right? Do you see how important unity is in the church? It is so important that people might not believe in Jesus if we are divided. What an indictment on the church in 2021. Instead, the church is living out the reality of James 4. What causes quarrels and, fi- and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that you, you, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This verse is a total contrast to that, that peace that Jesus brings when he breaks down that dividing wall of hostility. Passions here are self-centered desires that make war against other people. They can be manifested as violent language and, and unrestrained hostility. These desires and passions lead to terrible infighting in the church, and it all comes from putting ourselves ahead of others rather than putting others first. Paul gives the antidote in Philippians 2. He says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of this, what, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He continues, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now again, notice the key words in in these verses. What are the words he uses? He says, encouragement, love. If you want to know if you're walking with the Spirit, if you want to show affection and sympathy towards others, if you want joy, I mean, how many of us want joy in 2021? What should you do, he says? He says, have the same mind, which literally means have the same mind as Christ. Again, he's talking here about being united with Christ first and letting the love of Jesus envelop everything you do. He says, then you will have unity. And listen to this, what will that lead to, that unity? Not selfish ambition like James 4, not conceit and pride, It will lead to looking to others, what? Looking to others first. Putting yourself second. That's what brings unity in the church. That's what offers dignity and worth because you really and truly see and care about the other person. But we got to fight against this, right? Because it it is natural to want to put yourself first. All right, so let's apply this to the discussion about race and dignity. George Yancey, a professor at Baylor University wrote one of the best books I've read about the topic of race and, and relationships there. Uh, it's a book called Beyond Racial Gridlock. If you have one book to read on that topic, I, I recommend this one. 
Yancey knows what he's talking about because he's in an interracial marriage. He's black, and his uh, wife is white. And in the book, he critiques several secular views about how to deal with race. For example, he says, some people often take the colorblind view. And in this view, it's said the way to end racism is to ignore racial reality. Another view is the white responsibility view, which states that the dominant cultural group creates the problems of race and ethnicity. But ultimately, Yancey says that all these views have problems, and he offers a more biblical alternative, or what he calls the mutual responsibility view. In this view, every racial group owns their own part of the problem and seeks to work together towards a solution. And what he does really is brilliant, right? He, he recognizes that the sin of racism, the sin of partiality, is not, pro, it's not the problem of one ethnic group, it is a human problem. And so in doing this, he offers, the dignity, he offers dignity and worth to all people. Because all people own their part, and all people can be part of the solution. In doing this, we put others first. It also transcends modern sociological theories that have been superimposed on the scriptures, which seek to, seek to separate everyone into oppressed and oppressor classes. And if you hold that view, I would just simply ask, how does that bring people together? Again, come to our underground sessions on March 6th. We'll talk more about it. But before we leave this section, let me offer one tangible takeaway. And this is what I would say. If you want to, you, you know, find unity, you need to build cultural intelligence, or CQ. What is cultural intelligence, you might ask? Well, it is the capability of crossing cultural boundaries and prospering. For example, there, there's different customs and traditions in Senegal than there are in New Jersey. And in order to prosper in a different culture, I need to build my, my CQ. I need to build my cultural intelligence. About two years ago, I attended a cultural intelligence seminar down the road at Stonecrest Community Church. Really, really great training. Here is what I learned. We make too many assumptions about people based on the color of their skin. Not all white people are the same. Right? There's cultural differences between people based on their heritage. Like, like if you have a German heritage... Like, Germans are known for being like engineers, so you, you think a certain way, right? Uh, you might be of an Italian heritage. Italians tend to be maybe a bit more emotional at times, you know? I don't know. I'm generalizing. Not all black people are the same. There's a difference between someone who grew up in Atlanta and somebody who grew up in Senegal or Nigeria. There's a difference between Korean and Chinese and Japanese cultures and customs. Cultural intelligence involves knowing the difference. Additionally, this was, this was extremely helpful because it allowed me to see how I would prioritize my own ethnic preferences above that of others. For example, some cultures are very time-oriented. Other cultures are very relationship-oriented. Understanding where people are coming from helps me to put their needs above mine as it relates to this racial conversation. Now, if you're interested in doing that here at NBC, the women's ministry is hosting a Bible study by Tony Evans called Oneness Embraced, Reconciliation, the Kingdom, and How We Are Stronger Together. If you'd like more information about that, I'd invite you to contact Jen Dowden, although I will say that I, I was uh, talking with a friend this week who's done this study and uh, said it was excellent, so definitely, definitely a great um, study for you to join. Cultural intelligence helps you lower the temperature. Why? because it shows someone of a different ethnicity that they have dignity and worth. And so as we leave this section, I also want to make clear that racism is not just a black and white issue. It crosses all ethnic lines. 
So I've heard about Asian brothers and sisters feeling discriminated against because of the current pandemic. Or after 9-11, people of Middle Eastern descent were targeted with hateful words. We should not make assumptions about our Latino brothers and sisters. And if you subscribe to ideological social justice, you may harbor prejudice towards people with white skin and thus dehumanize them. We need to be careful with our words. Ultimately, we build cultural intelligence by being in relationship with people who are different than us. Unity puts others first. And let's not be complacent. Let's not think we're off the hook when it comes to injustice. Our final point is that of advocacy, plead others' case. Now, to advocate for someone means to speak in favor of, support, or plead on behalf of another. And here's the thing. If you're already in relationship with somebody, it's much easier to plead their case. That's why we need unity in the church. That's why we need relationships and friendships across ethnic and socioeconomic lines. Because when we know people, we will not only pray for them, we will step in and intercede and plead for them. That's what it looks like to do justice in the biblical sense. The social prophet Micah wrote this in his, in his, uh, in his book. He said, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, that's a really famous verse, and I don't doubt that you've heard it before, so let me just offer some background. Micah 6, 1 to 8, is what's called a covenant lawsuit. Yes, God is suing his people, accusing them of breaking his law. In the first five verses, Yahweh God interrogates his people. He calls creation as a witness. He recounts his past faithfulness to his people. And then in verses 6 to 8, he establishes his demand for covenant obedience. The climax is verse 8, and you've got to notice the famous triad here, right? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Or other translations say love mercy. Now, what's really interesting about these, these, uh, these words is that they're all... They're all three a form of love. The word for justice in the Hebrew is the word mishpah, which involves, on the part of the government, a fair and just use of power and proper functioning of a fair judicial system, specifically protecting the weak from the strong. On the part of individuals, the word refers to honest and fair business dealings, faithfulness to one's word, as well as not taking advantage of the poor and powerless. Thus, to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with our God means displaying love, of God's fellow, love to God's fellow image bearers by advocating for, stepping in for, and pleading for those in need. Israel had not done this, and God is correcting them in Micah 6.8. Now, if you want a modern example of how this could look, I would invite you to watch the film Just Mercy, there's also a book by the same title by a man named Brian Stevenson. The film tells the story of Brian, a black man from the North, Brian, it's Brian Stevenson's autobiography, who's a recent Harvard Law graduate, and he moves to Alabama to start what will be called the Equal Justice Initiative. This is a, a law firm which advocates for people on death row that can't afford representation. In the movie, Brian, played by Michael B. Jordan, represents Walter Johnny D. McMillan, an African-American man accused of killing a white woman. 
And as Brian takes the case and he examines the evidence, it becomes clear that Johnny D did not commit this crime. Instead, it was covered up. Some evidence covered up uh, uh, incrimination of somebody else. And ultimately, Brian is able to get the case dismissed and save Johnny D's life. The film does a good job of showing that just because laws change, it does not mean that hearts do. People can be treated unjustly even if systems have supposedly changed. Now, when we do justice, we give people the dignity and worth that they're owed. And while we can debate the systematic problems in our world today, it's hard to deny that the legacy of former systematic injustices, such as slavery and Jim Crow and redlining, have adversely affected minority groups. So how do we do justice? How do we become a voice for the voiceless? Let me offer just three brief examples as we finish up here. First, we need to inspect the situation. Scripture tells us to test everything. So research, ask questions, discern whether injustice is truly happening. And if it is, secondly, we need to inform others. Raise awareness of what is happening. And that can mean being involved in local politics to bring about change, or getting involved with a ministry organization or a church that is actively involved with the disadvantaged community. In fact, my friend Dan Fanko uh, leads a church called Camino de Fe, and they're reaching out to the Latino community in Burnersville and Somerville, doing just this. You could be part of what they're doing, or you could support them in some way. Third, we could invest in underprivileged communities. And so if you're a business owner, perhaps you can use your skills and resources to help bring revitalization to poor communities. Don't overlook them because it won't make you the most money. You could make a tremendous impact. So the temperature's hot. But when we do justice, when we love mercy, when we walk humbly with our God, we can lower the temperature and give people the dignity and worth they are owed. This is a challenging message especially in our times. Hopefully I've offered some tools that will lead you toward a more nuanced conversation. How do, we pursue, how do we pursue dignity as it relates to race? Embrace three principles. Identity, hear other stories, be quick to listen. Unity, put others first. That requires building cultural intelligence. Advocacy, plead others' case. And that happens in relationship as we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Now that story of Rwanda that I shared at the beginning should be a cautionary tale. When ethnic identity takes precedence over our in-Christ identity, it can lead to disaster. Again, that does not mean that our ethnic identities are unimportant, just not preeminent. The blood of Jesus has washed over all of our sins, but there's still work to do, and we, we need to step into those difficult, necessary conversations, and that takes courage. It takes faith that Jesus can bring peace. It requires us to love our neighbor. You remember that famous story of the Jericho Road in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10? There was a traveler who was beaten, left for dead, and as he was lying there, Dying, a few religious people walked by and just left him there. It was only the Samaritan, his ethnic enemy, who stopped to help him and went above and beyond to love his neighbor. We're called to do the same thing. We're called to advocate for, to plead others' cases. 
And by doing so, we treat them with dignity and the worth that they're owed. Again, as Paul wrote, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, thereby killing the hostility. What does it take to kill hostility? Let me invite the worship team back on stage for one final song. Killing hostility involves trusting in Jesus and loving our neighbor, even if they seem like our enemies. And so as we close, I would just invite you to ask yourself, what is my role in killing hostility? As we depart today, seek out a neighbor who looks different than you and who thinks different than you. Learn more about their identity. Pursue the high call of unity. And as you do this, advocacy will be a natural outgrowth. And if we do that, not only will it lower the temperature, but our neighborhoods, our country, and our churches will be better, and God will get the glory. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I thank you for my friends here today, Lord. I ask that, uh, Lord, you would help us. I ask that you would convict us, Lord. I ask that you would move us to action, get us out of complacency, Lord God. Help us to be brave and give us courage, Lord, to have conversations that lead to action. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would unite us by the blood of Jesus. Now, you paid it all, Lord. Your sacrifice, your blood covers over a multitude of sins, including the sin of racism and the sin of prejudice, Lord, the sin of partiality. We love you, Lord. May you get the glory for all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen.